The Ecology of Energy Technologies Interview with Ed Vine, Episode 15. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. This week, we speak with Ed Vine, who made his career at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, working on assessing and improving energy efficiency policies, technologies, and programs. He is an early pioneer in the area of improving how people use energy. He received his PhD from the University of California, Davis. Ed provides us with a big picture of change over time. In fact, we have a wide-ranging discussion on many topics with lots of twists and turns, but as you'll hear, it is a fascinating discussion we have on how energy technologies and policies have changed over time. One of the areas we discuss is when solar was just getting its feet in California and being experimented with by hobbyists and the challenges of integrating it into buildings and the electricity system itself. Now in California, solar is mandated into new buildings. We discuss the shift from producing energy, like solar or wind, to technologies that save and prevent energy from being used. Ed's long career provides us with an exciting look at how we move from policies to build nuclear power plants up and down the Pacific coast, to phasing out coal power plants and promoting high energy efficiency standards around the world. Ed's PhD is in ecology, and we discuss the benefits of multidisciplinary perspective and bringing together multidisciplinary team. This includes tackling problems highlighted by the Sustainable Development Goals. Ed was also part of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. We discuss energy cultures and what this means for Ed, which includes how we design homes, how people use their homes, and how social norms influence consumption habits. We discuss the impact women have for improving air quality, which results in less people going to the hospital. By understanding the impact of gender in the energy system, lives can be saved and improved. As you will hear, we do cover a lot of ground. The benefits from listening to Ed is to understand the intergenerational and time it takes for policies and technologies to change. Sometimes this is rapid, and sometimes it just creeps up on us as a result of consistent policies. And now for this week's episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. Ed, thank you so much for coming on the My Energy 2050 podcast. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. The reason I wanted to have you on was um, based on your long history of looking at energy efficiency um, in California, in the United States, and I would say around the world as well. And um, to, to get into it, I was wondering, maybe you could give us a bit of background and actually just how and why did you get in, involved in energy? Right. Good question. Uh, it isn't something people aspire to be, you know, a lawyer, doctor, energy researcher, right? That's sort of the yeah. top three. But um, I was actually uh, involved in sort of attuned or sensitive to environmental issues in the environment. And uh, as an undergraduate in college, I was actually going to be first an English major. And then the at the end of the first year, the professor said, you probably should look for another major. So then I said, okay, how about math? And I took linear algebra and I said, no, math is not for me. And there was a new discipline just starting at my college in Vermont. I went to a small college called Middlebury College in Vermont. And it was called environmental studies. And that sounded interesting and had great professors, uh, interesting topics. 
and I got a degree in environmental studies. And then I went to graduate school at University of California, Davis, and I was fortunate to get into the ecology group. And at the ecology group, um, actually graduate group in ecology, I uh, became a human ecologist. And uh, for your dissertation, I ended up doing two papers. One paper was on the solar energy movement. And it was from a sociological perspective. Are all these people deviants? Who are these people? This is, you know, in the late 70s. Uh, who are these people promoting solar energy? They're wackos. And it turns out they're very, as you, everyone knows now, they're not wackos. And uh, so that was one part. The other part in the energy world was looking at the city of Davis's energy conservation building code. And that was the first energy conservation building code in the US. And from my perspective, not, not only knowing what it is, but how did this community get to this? This wasn't pushed by either a state or federal government. This is by the community of Davis and who were the leaders. So that's how I got involved in that. And then- um, Wait, can I, can I uh, yeah, stop you there? Because I'm really interested in this community of, we could say, weirdos in the 1970s that were in, in, interested in solar energy. Can you kind yeah. of describe that time period and the people that were and were interested in solar and why were they interested? Yes, I think uh, why is always an interesting question because it's not just one reason, many reasons. And uh, some people wanted to separate themselves, get off the grid, the utility grid and just provide their own power. And they were also then confronting building code barriers saying, well, this is not allowed in the building code. So they were battling that. Other people were interested and had heard about a new technology and wanted just to try it out. Sometimes the best way of learning something is doing it yourself. And a number of people were doing the do it yourself DIY people. Um, yeah. So okay. Okay. That, that that was the emphasis there. Okay. Good. And you had a second part of how you got involved in energy. I, I interrupted you. Well, um, sort of one thing leads into another. So after I got my degree in graduate school, um, I had known and gotten in touch with people at Berkeley who were. Um, had a project that they wanted me to participate in and help some of the professors on survey. I became the survey guru, right? And the, there was a guy named Amory Lovins at the time who was just coming out with this book, The Road, Road Not Taken, Foreign Affairs. And there was a group saying, well, can California have a decentralized distributed energy society? And I met these great people and they were not all just technology people. And I sort of were getting much more attuned to the behavior side of energy. Uh, Laura Nader, uh, the sister of Ralph Nader, people may have heard, uh, an anthropologist studied energy and the culture of energy and looking at how people use energy and things like that. So I got more interested in that. And um, at the time, I met a, a man, Mark Levine, who invited me. He said, when you're finished with your dissertation, your thesis at Davis, maybe you'd like to work at this new place I'm working at called Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. I said, okay, we'll talk. I finished it. I called him up from the uh, 
downtown Berkeley. He said, come up. We talked. It sounded interesting. I said, yeah, I'd like to work here. This was a Friday afternoon. When can I start? He says, come in on Monday. And that's never left over all these years. It's my one and only job, Lawrence Berkeley Lab. I've been very fortunate. And it's great, particularly from an energy perspective, because people from all around the country and the world were coming in. Some were staying and working as guests. Other were giving guest talks. So I was fortunate as a researcher and to work on leading innovative projects in the energy world. Mm-hmm. And can you describe uh, how the Lawrence Berkeley, it's a national laboratory, how that's changed uh, when you first got into and then, I mean, you're still there now. So it must have gone through different many different changes over the over the periods it did i guess for me the personal change besides more people there um when i first started the focus on energy was on technology a great group of people how can we get energy efficient windows what are energy efficient buildings what about energy efficient appliances and a whole group started off looking at developing appliance standards which are now worldwide Uh, They were working with the California Energy Commission and then later with the U.S. Department of Energy, too. Um, So very few people involved in behavior. I was the behavior person. And then over time, a few more. So there are more people definitely over time interested in the behavior issue. Um, International. There was not a big international group. There was a few people I worked with. Um, and now there's a whole international energy studies group. We have a China energy group, India energy group, a Mexico energy group. So, uh, and as a result of that, not only finding out what is, how energy is being used around the world, people from all these countries are coming in and telling us how it's being used much more, uh, interesting and relevant when you have somebody who knows what's going on rather than a, an American or somebody from California going out. So mm-hmm. yeah, at, those- at the beginning, I'm, I'm interested because uh, one of the areas I teach in is about innovation of new technologies. Mm-hmm. And so so in the early days when, when they were looking at, say, Windows, uh, how... How how were the standards at that time? Because now the standards are you know <laughs> hugely hugely different different. Mm-hmm. And and how how did you see those standards change over time and the technology change over time and the role of the laboratory itself since it's government funded? Right, I would say um, well the, it, it, you have to take it in the context of bigger picture of how yes. energy has been changing too, right? Because yeah. the lab isn't right insular. So at the beginning, and um, I just gave a talk on this uh, for the California history, the um, we, we being people interested in this technology, had to prove to people that energy savings was real, that it could compete with a supply side generation, whether it's coal, oil, natural gas, because people were very suspicious saying, you know, how can we rely on energy savings? What is it? I don't see it. Well, if you build a plant and you see smoke coming out of a tower, they say, oh yeah, it's working. We're delivering energy. So that was sort of the big thing in making people aware, yeah, this is real. So how do you get energy savings? So then we had to show them technologies that really work 
And this is where my field came in, evaluation, saying, well, if you put all these technologies in a building, you can see the differences energy use and compare it with a control group or a comparison sample and show, yeah, they're using less energy compared to others. So that was in the early days. We're still doing lots of evaluation. And in fact, there's new group. One of the reasons I gave this talk about energy savings and evaluation was there's new group of people who didn't experience what we were experiencing in the 70s and the 80s, even the 90s. And so we're trying to explain to them why, how we came up through this stream. And the technologies, you know, you don't need to be an Einstein to develop these new technologies. Um, so at the beginning, it was double glazed windows. Everybody before had single glazed windows. They said, hey, if you put another pane, you can really save energy, right? If you put daylighting in buildings. Um, our focus was on energy efficiency rather than renewable energy. Um, and um, I guess since then, now we have triple pane windows, we have different kind of glazing on windows. Um, insulation is better, different kinds of insulation. Uh, so some things are different in technology wise, but some things remain consistent. Training, education, getting new people into the field. Um, and again, you know, I guess I, I deal it less from a technology perspective, although I focus sometimes on that, but more on the behavior, psychological, social perspective. And that has definitely changed because you can imagine if you go back into the early days and you're looking at, say, utility executives, they're mainly from the engineering schools and they know how to build a power plant. Anything else is risk. And if you look at people at high levels, except for some very unique companies, they're risk averse. So they'd rather just continue building power plants. And here's a group of people saying, wait a minute, let's slow down. We don't, you know, there was a vision in California of having many nuclear power plants all around the coast, from the, coast, from the border to Oregon, all the way down to Mexico. And fortunately, we were able to stop that. And uh, I mean, this is why I think energy efficiency is so interesting. I mean, there's many reasons, but I, uh, one of them, it, you know, you have that demand supply contrast where people think about building more power production or even renewable energy itself, solar and wind, and that's, that's green. But it's this energy efficiency that actually makes a bigger difference, which actually means that we don't have to build even so many solar or so many wind power plants. And, and how, how has this, uh, do, do you think this um, recognition of the, the savings and the impact of the, within the energy system that de the demand side plays has changed over the years? Good question. And let me give you a little story. A few years ago, where was I? I was in Manila at a conference there. And most of the people there were, were on the renewable energy supply. And I was having lunch with a guy across and never met him before. And he was on the renewable side. And he was explaining, he said, I don't understand energy efficiency. Why are you working on energy savings? You, if you need energy, I'll just supply another, you know, wind generator, more solar panels. We don't need, you know, it makes no sense. So I tried to explain to him just what you were just saying, that it makes no sense to spend a huge amount of capital when you can reduce that, say, by a half, as an example. 
And, you know, it's hard for people to fathom that. And what we did in California, as an example, uh, when solar was being pushed, and it is now for new construction, you need to have solar on your roof. But before you do that, you have to have an energy efficient building. That was part of the building code. So any builder who was going to put solar had to make sure that building met the energy efficient building standards mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or even exceeded in some cases. Uh, yeah. Because then you would actually just need less, you could say, energy input into the building itself. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. The way it's built. And uh, you bring up California and um, California, at least in the United States, uh, is is kind of like the forerunner or the lead, one of the leaders, right? In, in energy, yes. energy efficiency, even renewables and standards. Uh, I wonder, could you could you explain why that is, and then the impact that California has had, uh, both nationally and also around the world too? Sure. Yeah. Again, um, I was fortunate. I was, as they say, at the right place at the right time. So, and going back to what I mentioned earlier, leadership is important. Um, and there are two ways of two models of change, right? There's a top down and a bottom up. And when I mentioned earlier, the Davis experience, that was really a bottoms up. There were people in the community at different levels trying to create an energy efficient building code. In California, we had Jerry Brown, who was a leader in energy efficiency and was um, very influential in affecting people. At the same time, we had utilities who were resistant to this. And a number of them, as I mentioned, had been in the field for a long time. Over time, that that group has left and there are younger people who have understand energy efficiency. So it's been very supportive at the private sector and as well as in government. In government, it's continued. We haven't had ups and downs, peaks and valleys. It's been consistent with both energy efficiency and climate change now. Um, and as you said, in the early days, California was definitely the leader. And I always look at the states from a geographic perspective on the coast, on the left coast, the west coast, we have California, Oregon, California, Oregon, and Washington. And then in, on the east coast, we have New England has been a big uh, leader. And over time, a lot of states have bought into energy efficiency and doing quite well. And sometimes, depending on what metrics you use, can be ahead of California in terms of, say, dollar amount of energy savings per dollar, something like that, usually smaller states. But um, there's a group in the United States called ACEEE, American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, and they keep what they call scorecards of states and now countries and cities of how they're doing. So I recommend uh, the listeners to go to their website and you can see how other states are doing. I so never I, knew, that, sorry, I, I never knew that ACEEE actually it had economy in the name. I knew I have heard of ACEEE, but yeah. uh, now I just, uh, and, and it makes sense, right? Because right. The, the impact that energy efficiency can have in the economy is quite big. Yes. And of course, <laughs> there's a sister organization to them in Europe called ECEEE, European Council on Energy Efficient Economy. So doing this mm. very similar things, particularly on the conferences and publications. Mm. Um, 
So, yeah, I think one of the ways um, information awareness uh, occurs is through reports and conferences. And I'll give you an example. Yes, please. Because before we we thought conferences were really boring, but fun to go to. But now that we don't have conferences, uh, what, what is the impact of those? Yes. Yeah, well, here's a side story again. I was, um, I had a project with the California Public Utilities Commission. I can mention them, but I won't mention the people. And um, in my work, I said, you know, I'm going to use the funding you're giving me to go to this ACEEE conference, which is held every two years, a summer study. And they said, you know, we didn't pay you to go to conferences. Why are you going to conferences? So I had to explain to her, and she sort of, understood to say, okay, go. And by the time I got there, there were some of her staff who were going to the conference. And it's, you know, one of the important activities that they go to because they not only can present what they're doing, but they can hear what other people are doing around the world. And that is, that interchange is so important in our world today. Um, So, Going back to evaluation, I help with others have an evaluation conference every two years in California, in uh, in the U.S. since 84 or 85 now. So um, start, we had 84 and then 85 and every two years, every odd year. And it was great, but we weren't getting a lot of international people, even though it was called the International Energy Evaluation Program Conference, IEPEC. And then we said, let's try to have one in Europe. And we did and became IEPPEC, which is program and policy. And that is continuing on the even years every two years. Ah. And then we weren't getting people from Asia. And I had met some people who said, how about us? Can you try it? So that's sort of answers your question in terms of, yeah, I'm working pro bono in developing a community of evaluators in the Asia Pacific region. Yeah, we have workshops, work webinars, and we've had a conference or two. A conference, I think, just one now. Um, and this is where ideas get exchanged, and so what we learn in California gets to the U.S., to Europe, and the rest of the world. Yeah, I want that, and then that leads to one of the the questions there too: is the the role that the evaluators, the energy efficiency evaluators, play? And I was wondering, I'm really interested in this program because it seems really, uh, from what I've read, uh, what you've written about it, really on an on the ground program. And I was wondering if you could describe uh, why or how, as you did a bit, uh, how it started, but how did it start and why did it start? And then, then I have more questions, but that's a good spot to start. Yeah, sure. No, it's, um, and, and I hope you're probably getting the flavor. It's not a simple answer. It's diverse and a lot of diverse people are in it. Um, so, and the, and the main reasons we evaluate both energy programs and policies, we want to learn what works and what doesn't work. Okay. And one is quantifying the impacts, how much energy was saved, or now what are the emissions that have been saved, greenhouse gas emissions. So that's what's called impact evaluation. But just as important, and what we urge people to do, to do both, is what's called process evaluation. We not only want to know what happened, but why. How did we get the savings? Could we have gotten more? 
why do people participate in programs and why more importantly why aren't people participating in programs and i think one of the reasons we got involved in evaluation goes back to my early days at lawrence berkeley lab where i mentioned the focus was on technologies there was also interest in cost and one of the leaders art rosenfeld i can mention him he's no longer here but he was a a leader in this field, some say the, the grandfather of energy efficiency, said he couldn't understand we have these great technologies, why aren't people buying them? They should be empty shelves, but they're all in the shelves, nobody's buying them. So we said, well, let's evaluate why they aren't. Why aren't people buying new efficient lighting or new windows, etc.? So that's been a very important reason for helping design new programs, as well as improve existing buildings you and mean, other programs. So, so you mean just because we have the technology doesn't mean people are going to actually use it? Right. We, right. There's a second step or a third, right? Yeah. 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 And in fact, there's an intermediate step if because the economists were involved in this part too, saying, yeah, let's look at the economics what our favorite term is cost effectiveness. Are they cost effective? And it is. And so people are still uh, scratching their heads. Why are people going out in droves buying all this new? So the evaluators had a very important role to play in explaining why some programs work and some programs don't work. Mm -hmm. and, w and what are some general <laughs> takeaways of why, why some work and well, why some oh, work? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> it it differs, right? But based question, on everything. But, uh, uh -huh. um, well, there are many reasons. Um, one reason is people informed. People are not informed. You know, the utility says, oh, we have a program, but people may not even be aware of the program. So the old model, again, in the early 80s, say, was the utility telling customers, we have a program, that's it. Well, mm -hmm. people didn't hear about it. How are they going to, they weren't going to the customer. So there, one of the big changes is more customer interaction where the utility, instead of being passive, is very active and going out to the communities. Um, and we know we can learn more. So one is information and awareness. Um, and one is communication and seeing what resonates with people. And we can't, one of the biggest problems early on with particularly mass media was sending one message out to thousands, if not millions of people. Well, people as you yourself resonate with different messages. So the environmental message may be very important for people. It may not be cost effective for some things, but they're saying, if I wanna reduce if I want to address climate change and reduce greenhouse gas emissions, I'm going to have an energy efficient home, for example. Um, in the, another important player in all this is the private sector, even building owners and companies and companies, many companies, and I wouldn't say all, have been leaders in energy efficiency, either for their own interests or they believe in some of the messages saying, we want to be an environmental sustainable to, uh, company and we're going to invest in energy efficiency, solar, etc. Um, I think we've done a pretty good job, but we could probably do a lot more. So one of the things I looked at uh, a few years back was communities and competition. 
and how you can compete and urge people to use and save more energy. So if you remember your college days and you may have lived in a dorm, that's in the US example, people live in different <laughs> dorms. There's dorms competing against a dorm to see who could save energy. In California, there are communities to seeing who could be the coolest California community and do the most. Um, so there are different ways of influencing people. And what happened is the behavior, the, in terms of the economists, we now have behavior economists, behavioral economists, who are lo looking at both of those, trying to merge economics with the behavior side. We have sociological, soci I, I get you, sociological. Sociological, hard word. <laughs> no, social science for sure. Sociologists, psychologists, mm -hmm. etc. They're much more interested, and there's great work for climate change and psychology. So, yeah. So we're 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 learning using new instruments, as it were, and trying to do as much as we can to save as much as we can. Mm -hmm. One of the case studies I used to use in class was this company called Opower. I, I'm guessing yes. you've heard. And then now they've been bought out know. by... Uh-huh. Yeah. But, but that's it, right? That's this behavioral psychology yeah. behind it. it definitely. Uh -huh. And for them, the way they... I, I know them well. The way they started out is, you know, I'm sending a bill to you. Would you like to know what your neighbors used? Or people who lived in the same sort of either apartment or house that you live in, here's a comparison group. And then you, you either, you know, you're doing as well as they are, you're doing better, you're not doing as well. Why aren't you doing as well? And the utilities bought into that as well as a big program for them. Yeah, yeah. It's such an interesting company. I mean, now it, it was bought up, I think, by Cisco or some... I know they were bought out by... Remember who bought them? Yeah, they used to have really good material on the internet, so I'd always yes. use that for teaching. And then now it's kind of like gone; it's been um, consumed by <laughs> one of these yeah. huge corporations. Yep. Oh. Uh, but it, but it's great, and they they actually expanded around the world too. I know they were act active in the UK oh, yeah. and in Europe uh, elsewhere too. So yeah, uh, it's a real success. I mean, and, and I because what I liked about it was like here's a here's a company working with utilities. Uh, and kind of from the startup approach, actually, as well, right? And then going out in the community yeah. and just influencing the behavior by just their messaging or the bills that they send and, and right. you know, presenting the information a different way. So then it impacts. I mean, and yeah. they had measurable impacts by just changing definitely. this communication. Yeah, they were very good statistically, definitely. And just, as again, as an aside in terms of how that work gets spread, um, I help with others form a conference called Behavior, Energy, and Climate Change, BECC. Uh -huh. And that was trying to really highlight the behavior side in this whole energy world. And they have annual conferences. They've been holding it for a number of years in the States. Japan had one conference, at least one conference. Europe has a behavior, behave conference. So th that's spreading as well. So if you had to go back to university and start all over again at, say, 18, what would you major in? Uh, and doing the same thing I'm doing now? Or well, I mean, you could different? you could major in anything, anything. What would it be? Behavioral uh, economist? Or, or, no, I'm not. I'm not oh. great on uh, that part. Um, what, um, that's a good question. I. 
Well, I like the path I had. I mean, I don't, you know, environmental studies and ecology were great. Ecology was a, a great major. Um, and, and I'm glad I got a PhD in ecology. And the reason I say that, uh, besides getting a great education, the, um, the perspective has influenced everything in my life. So an ecological perspective is a holistic perspective and seeing how things are tied together and integrated and realizing if you mess with one part that you don't even think has anything to do with what you're addressing, it may affect it. And so as a result of that, from, uh, say, a work perspective, it, it, it is impractical for, some, for somebody to be an individual researcher. You need a team of researchers with different perspectives. So that's what my talks, particularly on the evaluation teams, I urge people to be multidisciplinary. So we need statisticians, we need psychologists, sociologists, we need good engineers, economists, and so on. And you bring them together, which is, you know, going back, going to one of your questions about sustainable development and the sustainable development goals. Mm -hmm. You can't have one discipline. And, and what I've uh, written, even before sustainable development goals, I have a, a title uh, of a paper called breaking down the silos because what's happened historically and traditionally, particularly in the early part of my career, there were these different silos. Oh yeah. We work on supply side. We work on the demand side. Uh, we work on uh, legislation. We work on policy. Uh, and you need to bring all those people together to understand how they work. And in fact, um, getting a little, hopefully not too rambling, but in terms of evaluation, how you evaluate programs and what works and what doesn't, you also need to understand the organizations that are implementing these programs. I mentioned utilities, but they're also now in California and elsewhere, what we call third parties. They're not utilities. Some are nonprofits, but they said we can deliver energy efficient products. But you need to know, understand how organizations work in their processes and how these programs affect them. So it's multiple perspectives, multiple disciplines, and understanding how they're all linked together. But, but then you're using that kind of positionality or the perspective of ecology to link them all together. Yes. Yeah. For me, I was fortunate because I learned that at the beginning of my career. I didn't have to learn it during my career. Some yeah. people have to learn on the job. I mean, I learned a lot on the job, but I, I was fortunate coming in with that perspective rather than a legal perspective or an engineering perspective, for example. Mm -hmm. But that's why the energy sector is so interesting, right? Because it's all oh, these different uh, yeah. fields of study uh, that, that come together and then around energy and then how people interact and learn from each other. It's this right. constant. Yeah. Yeah. I understand this perspective because I'm a geographer. So yeah, my master's, PhD, even my BA is oh. in, in geography. So these spatial relations. That's are... great. So freshman year in college, I only took one geography course called Introduction to Geography. And it was the best class I have. And I still think along <laughs> those lines. Because I think along why are cities where they are and look where the where the rivers are yes. and, or the or on this on the coast 
And that's why in many respects, that's where the cities are. And then you learn everything from that. So yes. uh, geography is a good major. I could have, going back to your earlier question, <laughs> geography major, maybe, you know? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. Hey, you know, you can still do another PhD in geography if you want. Yeah. So I, Yeah. Part yeah. of my retirement. Right. Yeah, yeah. Or you know, you can apply uh, at CU and do one in environmental studies, and you can be you can be my yeah. student. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Actually, I would make you teach me. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's what I would do. So you're you're more than happy to apply. So um, I, I want to yeah move move this along a little bit more. Uh, yeah, actually, I want to go to the Nobel Peace Prize uh, from 2007, and you were a member of the team that uh, were awarded that with the Intergovernmental Panel Panel on Climate Change. And right. I was wondering, maybe you can give us both context to the why the Nobel Committee uh, selected the IPCC for the award, and then how did that impact your research uh, going down the line now? Right. Again, being at the right place at the right time, right? So... Um, it could be a long story. I'll try to shorten it. Long, long is good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, well, we already have one step. I'm focusing on, in, on evaluation. And there was a group of people at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency who were, um, sorry about no, that. No, it's okay. It's good. Phones off. Um, who were interested in climate change? They were the early pioneers, and about evaluating projects related to climate change. So, can you offer? They asked the, me and other people about. Can you offer us any guidance on what you would do to tell people how you would evaluate projects for climate change? So that's how I sort of got involved in that, and then. One of my colleagues who worked in the inter international field was working at the at the start with the IPCC, and they were interested in one area, not energy, but forestry, forestry projects, what we call carbon offsets. So can people invest in, say, doubling the size of a forest, get credit for the emissions not emitted as part of emissions trading? And can you offer guidance for that? So that's how I was pulled in. And it became a seminal report in the forestry sector based on what I learned from the energy sector, saying, here's how you should go about evaluating. So I learned a lot about forest trees and tree growth, et cetera, and measurement technologies. But the processes are virtually the same, right? And when I say that, you need impact evaluation and process evaluation. Same ideas, but sort of windows, it's trees. And uh, because of my contribution there, as well as thousands of other scientists, we were able to get this uh, Peace Prize. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel very fortunate uh, with respect to that. Um, how has it affected? It really hasn't affected me personally. Um, yeah, uh, I, more people, I guess, have actually mentioned it to me than I mentioned it to them. So <laughs> let's put it that way. And they're honored to meet somebody who's won one of those. So I, it's been good in that respect. It hasn't changed what I was doing for research. I continued basically doing the same thing. 
Um, yeah. I'll, okay. I'll okay. That. Yeah. No, no. It's, it, I, I like that description. And uh, because, well, actually, I'm a bit surprised. Sorry. Uh, if I think about it, you got, you got this big uh, award for it, for your mm -hmm. research, right? Mm -hmm. And and in a sense, I would, would have thought, and I was expecting to answer that, that you're on the right track, right? But maybe, but maybe at that stage in your research, you were kind of on your on the a track, anyways, right? And so right. you just kind of like kept going forward, right? Mm. Yeah, it's sort of, you know, I, I don't want to minimize it, but yeah. it's sort of a pat on the back, saying yeah. good work, uh, we're glad you're doing it, and continue it. And so, you know, it, it was positive reinforcement. If it was negative, I'd probably be doing something <laughs> different, right? But it said, yeah, good things can come out of that. And it's, you know, it's been great. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I've been very fortunate. And, and, and reflecting back, I, I don't, I don't, I don't mean this as a controversial question, but, um, you know, because there are continually more and more reports on climate change and possible solutions and things that we need to do. So within this space, how do you, how do you see, um, both the impact of these continual reports and also, I mean, are they losing some of their ed edge or people are kind of getting, yeah, okay, it's climate change. We're all going to die soon. So they don't pay any attention to it anymore. Yeah. Or how, how do you, how do you see the continual, uh, I don't know, even scientific endeavor in this area? Right. Um, well, the scientific endeavor will continue. So we'll be getting more, you'll be hearing more reports and, um, I think, um, and I understand what you're saying, you know, how many times can you get hit over the head and say, <laughs> okay, I believe it, I believe it. You know, in the beginning, when we were talking about climate change, uh, there was the, what we call the NIMBY perspective. It's, you know, until I see it, I'm not gonna be influenced by it. You know, polar bears, they can't get fish. Well, that's way over there. I don't have polar bears in my backyard. So um, there was this education, information, communication. One of my dear colleagues I work with, he's no longer here, Steve Schneider at Stanford, focused his latter part of his career on communication, which is a big aspect in trying to make people realize this is serious. And I think over time, more people were aware, knowledgeable, understand it's severe. You still need to weigh their long-term benefits versus their near-term benefits. And are they willing to pay now for something to help support an organization? Um, and it goes back to leaders and can we do something? I guess one of the biggest issues today is um, how quick can we act? So traditionally, if you look at any kind of problem, it's usually over long time period. And people say, oh, we have time, we'll get to that, we'll do that, maybe in three years or so. But the urgency is becoming more apparent and relevant. And now, as you said, you turn on your television or on your computer, uh, there's another story about the impact of climate change. And we're just going to be hearing more about that. So that's inevitable. Um, you know, personally, I just see it continuing, even if we make great strides, there's a, a long, there's a long story for that, but basically the amount of change that has already occurred 
will take a long while to reduce that negative issue. So we're going to be dealing with it for a long time. So I think I still think mitigation is great, and that's why I've dealt with energy efficiency is one reason, nuclear power and now greenhouse gas emissions. But I've also written on adaptation, and I think more money has to be invested in how we adapt to warmer climates. Otherwise, we're going to be facing the same problems we're facing now. It's like people throwing their hands up. It's too late, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But it's always going to be too late. Or yeah. how, how do I how do I say that? Right? There's uh, well, I, because the the system's already changing so much. Yeah. So even if we what what is it? Even if uh, all the CO two or the gar- greenhouse gas emissions stop now, the, the, yeah. this this climate uh, I don't know cascade has has already begun. So the world will continue to change. Right. So here's an issue you didn't raise in your questions, but I've been talking uh-huh. about it anyway in my, some talks, is the pandemic. And the pandemic, which is a terrible thing, has actually enlightened us in many ways and has what I call made the invisible or what other people have called. I'm not taking credit, but I use it in my talks. Yes, yes. Making the invisible visible things. You, and going back to linkages, looking at equity, and racial discrimination, et cetera. But the other thing is that doing what people thought was impossible, possible. So particularly in the U.S., with a new president, we have a national face mask requirement. So if you go on federal lands, federal buildings, public transit, you have to wear a mask. Who would have thought that in the U.S.? Yeah. In other countries that have been had the experience of wearing masks, it's a lot easier. The U.S. is just on the opposite end. So things that we thought were impossible can be possible. And I think, I'm hoping, too, that people in the climate change area who previously dismissed, oh, we can't do that, that's impossible, should sort of go back to what they were saying and look at that what they were saying and say, well, maybe not so. And if more leaders realize that as well, I think significant change can occur, and particularly for adaptation. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I'm glad you brought up COVID-19. Uh, it was kind of what I wanted to ask next. And maybe this is uh, in your area, maybe not. But um, do you do you think, because, you know, the price of oil just completely dropped last spring, uh, and then, okay, it's still quite low, and these things are changing, but it also seems the companies there's this big enough momentum even within like pension funds, investment funds to really push forward and force at least the private oil and gas companies to divest or at least to transition and diversify away from oil and gas. Do you, do you, do you think that we're maybe even at a tipping point where uh, at least uh, the use of oil and for gasoline and diesel and transportation is going to fade away now? And th- this technological change actually could be quite quick. Yeah. So I've obviously been studying this for a long time and um, getting them to change is a slow process. And it goes back to everything I was telling you before. We had the people who were leading all these companies, the companies and the regulators of the companies as well, sort of an old school. Now we have new people involved who are more amenable to new ideas, new opinions. So things have been changing um, slower than a lot of people had anticipated. So people have been 
you know, saying no coal power plants or let's get a, no new coal power plants, then no coal power plants. Um, now we see companies saying we're going to get rid of our investment in fossil fuels over time, say 20 by 2050, if not sooner, 2030 for in some cases. So we're seeing these activities slowly creeping up. Uh, and sometimes you don't know how fast it is until, you know, fast forward 10 years. Uh, whoa, yeah. we did it, you know. Uh, so it's hard to tell. There's a lot of money at stake. A lot of uh, pensions are involved, Who people who have invested in these. There are other, you know, so that's sort of part one. And then there are new companies for investment. And you think of the technology, you think the Amazon, Facebook, et cetera, who Microsoft, huge companies that people are investing in rather than power plants. The question has always been, can we really go from where we are today to totally energy efficient, renewable society? And an, another colleague, Mark Jacobson at Stanford has been urging, yes, we can do that and showing. And I think we're starting to see more policymakers understand, yeah, we can do that if we make certain investments and disinvest. And so it's a, sort of a long answer. Yes, we can do that. I do see the day when we're using less, I don't know about zero gas or mm -hmm. zero, zero coal even, because I have to stay, take a step back from the United States and looking at from an international perspective, looking at Australia, Indonesia, China, even uh, Russia, you know, they're heavily invested in these fossil fuels and they are making changes, but it's going to take a while and they have millions of people mm -hmm. and they, yeah. 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 I, I actually, let's just stay on the inter international uh, realm and you you you've written about energy culture and actually you wrote uh, about energy culture i just published a book called energy culture so uh it's a wonderful term and i feel so bad i didn't cite you in my book uh for <laughs> summarizing <Sleep> well <laughs> yes but i was wondering maybe maybe because you you have it in an article and then you just mentioned it and okay i spent years trying to develop it and define it or discuss it. But I was wondering, could you describe this and, and what it means? Yeah, I guess. I'm not sure how you describe it. <laughs> Probably different, but I'm, but I, okay. I, I, I think we're on the same page. Okay. If you look at how society has developed, energy has played a crucial role in that. And you can look at the industrial revolution, you can see, look at railroads and technologies. And if you look behind the scenes, energy is a driver in that. It either supplies the force to drive all these things. And um, you need to, where does the energy come from? Where are the resources coming from? And unfortunately, it depends, you know, it varies from country to country, but if you look at where energy comes from, they're often in areas where they're impoverished people, right? So the big dams, when you look at where big dams have been built and seeing who's been sort of dismissed and they've had to move and live somewhere else, these are not the one percenters, right? Um, so there's that cultural perspective. Then from going all the way down to sort of the micro level. Um, and I, I was fortunate to be involved in a study looking at energy use 
in Hispanic or Latino households in California and how they view energy, because a number of them came from outside the U.S., their parents or they themselves, and they look at energy differently than the way we do. And as an example, uh, air conditioning is a good example where historically, for if you wanted to cool your, if you wanted to be cool, you build a house not in the open, but under trees, right? Where there was shade. If there was wind outside at night, you open the windows. You wouldn't keep all the windows closed. And then that's over time that has changed the air conditioned rooms and buildings where you can't even open a window. Yeah. So we're going in the opposite direction. So it's under, it's important to understand, understand antecedents and what we can learn and lessons learned from other cultures in doing that. It's just one example. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we, we have been conducting research. Some of the early research projects was looking at how can you cool buildings without using air conditioning. And there are ways of doing it. Like ceiling fans is another good example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Using that. Yeah, right. And how, how buildings are designed as well, too. Yes. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I know our, our CU building, well, the one here in Budapest, uh, actually has these, uh, it's like a triangular kind of these vents that face a certain way towards the Danube, where the air, the, the wind blows that way. So it right. captures the clean air blowing along the river, oh, great. and then brings it into the building. It, it's amazing uh, system. So, so it was designed that way. And then the heat rises up too, and then it escapes out, out the top. Yeah. yeah. So... I'll have to send you a link for the for the yeah, building. I'd so like it, it's sure. it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, um, okay. I, I would like to move on a little bit uh, too about uh, teaching, because uh, I'm always I enjoy teaching, but I'm always challenged, and there's yeah, I'm always challenged about how to teach energy. Right? There's so many topics in energy, uh, and I was just wondering, maybe from from your experience talking about energy, uh, so many different topics. Uh, how do you, how do you, are there some ways, some stories you tell to communicate the importance of, I would say maybe energy efficiency or even just awareness of, of energy itself in our daily lives? Right. Um, I've always felt that it's important to talk about things that people can relate to and resonates with them. So probably all, I mean, all your students live in a home or home in the generic sense. It could be an apartment and there are all sorts of different, it doesn't have to be a house, but a home. And from there, and this is what actually, um, what another program that has been going on for many years is teaching, teachers teaching students, young students, kindergartens all the way up to you know high school about energy. And having them go back to where they live and seeing how energy is being used. And I would urge that as one example, I mean, there are different ways of approaching, but for them to understand, go back, how is energy used? What appliances are using energy? Um, and how can you use less energy? Are the lights on? The best example in the early days is why, why are lights on all the time if nobody's in a room? And then you have a discussion with the parents and saying, why are you keeping the lights on? So you have that discussion and things can change. This is particularly 
uh, useful in the early in the early days of the recycling movement when children were criticizing their parents. Don't throw that away. We can recycle that. And the parents, oh my God, what have I turned my kids into? So recycling mafia there. But you can do the same thing on energy. So you start at that local level within the home. And then you build out neighborhood, community, city, for example, region, country, state, country, et cetera, and seeing how other people were using energy. And one of the interesting things, I'm glad you raised this. I've been very, okay, there are many stories here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so when I graduated, I, you know, which path does Ed take, teacher or researcher? And I decided it was hard. I enjoyed research and I didn't want to teach 18 year olds for the rest of my life. Okay. So I said, I'm going to stay with researching. It's good. There are some people who can do both teaching and research, but I would say that's few versus very good teachers or very good researchers. Mm -hmm. But I was always interested in, especially over time, helping the younger people, the students. And uh, <clears throat> I helped create an organization on the West Coast. And then eventually it became our national organization um, on sustainability in higher education, American Association for Sustainability, AASHE, which is involves all the campuses and professors focusing on <clears throat> sustainability in terms of curricula, facilities, some other things which I can't remember right now, but it's important. So there are different levels one can take. And one of the, the, I guess I mentioned that only because when I went to different campuses, the amount of energy and interest, energy in the different yeah. phrase, the interest mm -hmm. in sustainability, energy efficiency, uh, recycling, et cetera, um, was great. I mean, they're so eager. So you have new blood with a lot of energy and willing to address society, societal problems. So I would start again, just to repeat, at the household level, and then going back to teams and groups, have students work together on addressing. So in the beginning, it's just them and their parents or their brother and sister, but then working with other students on a particular issue. And you know, once you're, you get your hands dirty, as they say, you really, people appreciate the whole subject field, because it can be too abstract or conceptual, you know, energy flows, how much gas is being used here, electricity there. But once you start getting a better feel of, oh, that refrigerator uses a lot of energy, maybe we should, you know, it's 30 years old, maybe we should get a, a energy efficient refrigerator. Yes, yes. And does that tie into some of your, the evaluator, your the evaluator program in Asia? This Yes. So I'm glad you mentioned that as well. So um, I retired and I realized what I wanted to do was to continue helping people who I knew needed help in the evaluation field. And it was over in Asia. And um, we wanted to focus on what we call evaluation capacity building and capacity building um it focuses both on developing the skills for evaluation. So it involves teaching and training, developing manuals, and then um, 
sort of making it more sustainable by developing evaluation plans, policies, procedures, and documents that people can take and go from one country to another and use those. And focusing again on young evaluators. So there's also a group that we're starting to work with called APEA, Asia Pacific Evaluation Association, that deals not just with energy and very little, but everything, education, anything you, that gets evaluated. And they have a group that they're encouraging called the Young Evaluation People, YEA. I don't know what that association, I guess. Okay. Evaluators. And um, so there's a big push to have them get more involved in learning about evaluation, having classes. And in fact, one of the, after today, uh, one of my, my next activities is we're going to try to put together a directory of colleges and universities offering classes on evaluation, particularly on energy. Oh, but not yeah. there, since there isn't much on energy, it involves all of that. We did that in the U.S. I did, I led that effort 20 years ago in the U.S. for the IEPEC. I want to do something similar for all these other countries because they're all trying to figure, well, how can I learn? Where yes. can I learn about evaluation? So that's what we're trying to do. Yes. Oh, I like it. I like how, A, you're taking your experience, not just, okay, in California, but in the United States and then going international with it as well. Yeah. Yes. This is why I mean, okay, because I, I, I live in Europe, but yeah, I just see these are global issues that we're dealing with. And then the solutions, right? They're local, but there's so much that doesn't have to be replicated again or relearn, like just by sharing the knowledge, uh, so much can, can happen and yes. leap, leapfrogging. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Simple things too. I mean, one of the things, and, and I can learn from them. So it's just not one way. Yes. Me, <laughs> I can learn from them. And one of the things I learned and cause I don't know why, but I became more sensitized to it is the gender issue in evaluation mm, yes. and energy. And uh, to, to take a step back when I first started and went to these conferences and meetings, Virtually, it was all men. There might be one or two women. Now, if I go to them in the United States, at least half, if not more, are women. So there have been big, big strides uh, made here. And internationally, it's starting to get to that level as, as well. More women are getting more involved in energy uh, from different perspectives, either technology or what I've been doing. Um, so... Going back to team effort, I want to make sure if there's an evaluation going on, there's a team that women are included because they bring a different perspective than a male does. Okay. So that's one part. The flip side is we need really to look at the impact, particularly internationally in, and particularly in developing countries, the impact of energy programs, whether they be energy efficiency or renewable on women and what kind of a difference it makes. And I was sensitized to that, again, because in Africa, uh, a friend of mine has been studying and working, well, I'll get to that, uh, has been looking at the role of women in energy in households. And they're the ones who go out and bring firewood for stoves. And my friend at the lab, working with others, has developed energy efficient stoves so they don't have to use as much wood they don't have to go out and it's dangerous for some women who go out by themselves or even alone or with others because sometimes they get attacked so um 
anyway. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I, I, I wanted to, to, yeah, follow up with, with the role that women play in the energy system. We, we can phrase it like that. And, and be, why, why? Uh, I, I realize we're two white men talking about this, so it's. Bit, yeah. I don't want to say odd, but, but we're just highlighting it. And, and, and uh, when, when women are involved in, say, the evaluation process or even the research process. How does that, how do you think that influences the, the results at the end? I, the way it influences, you incorporate their perspective in the results. And as an example, um, if you, uh, what would be, if you have an energy efficient solution or a solar solution and it saves them money, the people, how do they use the money? Does it go to the man? Or to the woman. And often now, the women, because they're, for whatever reason, more industrious, and they start these local economies within their village, for example. And so we need to show how that flows. Okay. And that gets into a bigger picture, which we sort of tangentially talked about, is multiple benefits of energy efficiency. And this goes back to using multiple perspectives. So gender benefiting women is a plus, right? Same way, here's another example. Using less wood and hopefully cleaner stoves, the health within that home is better. The air quality mm -hmm. is better. So they don't have to go to the hospital. So the cost on the health side are decreased. So that's another benefit. Jobs. So you have econ employment, health, um, and so on. Mm -hmm. I like right? that. Yeah, so yeah. That, and that should definitely be highlighted. Rather than here's how much energy we save, that's the end of the story. That's what's so interesting and dynamic about bringing all these perspectives and benefits together. And people then will realize the value of evaluation. In fact, last week I gave a talk to California, mainly California people, on strengthening the value of evaluation. And one of the key points is the multiple benefits perspective and making people realize it's just not saving energy. It's not just saving, reducing emissions. It has all these other benefits. Knock mm -hmm, mm -hmm. through. Yeah, I, th I think what really opened my eyes most was learning about cook stoves. And the impact that has on, on women in developing countries and the safety aspect of it, but also just the hours, the amount of time these and resources they put into collecting firewood and, yeah. and the impact of that. So and right. it's both a technological solution, uh, a new design to cooking, to creating a fire. So it has the technology right. side there, but also has the big imp social impact as well. So yes. that's my 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 experience. Yeah. Uh, Okay, uh, I want to maybe just we can we can wrap this up. But actually, I have two questions. One is the interrelationship between business and government. Uh, mm -hmm. This is I, we don't need to go to Donald Trump and conspiracy <laughs> theories. But but how how but, but uh, and we touched on it. And we've talked, I think, a lot about society. But but I think I think maybe the role that the private sector does play in the energy sector uh, as a you know, we talked about innovation, solar, win, uh, windows. So, so the the private sector plays a, a central part in that. And how does government policy uh, play into that too to actually improve the energy system? How is that interrelationship 
Or how can that interrelationship be explained? Oh, boy. That's a, a, <laughs> I'm asking you the question. I'm not answering it. That's a three-week answer. Okay. So, because um, it's sort of a common theme from day one of my experience. It's the balancing between government and the private sector. And, um, and it goes back to the economist and, and the market forces saying, well, if these technologies are so good, the market will take it up, people will buy it. Well, it doesn't happen. So either we have to change sort of the marketplace and what is the role of government for doing that? So that's why we have energy efficient standards, building codes that the market has to meet at a minimum so that, that's sort of the balance between that two. Then the private sector can either meet the minimum or exceed and say, hey, we're doing better than that. And they're doing it often for their self-interest. They see this as a way to increase their market share, saying you could buy that, but we'll provide a home very similar to that, but you'll save energy. You'll save 20% of your bill, right? So why don't you buy this energy efficient building? And so the private market has a very, they're very important player. The utilities are private actors regulated by util, by commissions. Um, but there, again, I, going back to one of my earlier comments about leaders, and I mentioned utilities and government as leaders, but in the private sector, there is one company, I think it was called Interface, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the carpet company. Uh-huh. Yeah, I met yeah, him. I, yeah. had, I oh, actually, okay. he, uh, we brought him, he was one of our guest speakers at this ASHI, the Sustainable Conference, because he saw the light. He read a book, understanding why sustainability is important. And he said, he stopped everything at work, said, we're going to have a sustainable company everything changes. You show me how it all links together. And he had a different teams come together and educate him. And they became a leader and they made a lot more money by doing this. Roy Anderson. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Ray, 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 oh, Ray Anderson. Anderson. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and so there, ha- there are other examples across the board, right? Where people realize, yeah, we need to do something. In the private sector, and they are great. great. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I, my last question uh, is actually uh, maybe. So yeah, I just on your CV uh, you have that you're retired, a re- returned retiree, or something. At the, <laughs> well, I was. What is that affiliate? <laughs> <laughs> it seems it seems like you're not retired. And so my, my question is, what keeps you doing the research, keeps you publishing, it keeps you doing these new initiatives? Yeah, I, you know, I thought about that question. <clears throat> I'm glad you raised it. Um, I, I guess I'm a researcher and it's in my blood. And I find things that are interesting and novel. And as an example, I've told you about my Asia Pacific stuff, but what I've been doing, and there's a lot, well, a longer story, but I got involved in the pandemic and the virus and the and variants. So I have a little, and I'm not asking an email I send out to my friends. We'll call it that. It's not one of these social media things uh, because I find it interesting 
how we have a problem and looking at solutions and how do we get to those solutions. And this virus is so novel that every day is different. And I, I, you know, I said, okay, I'm on like, I don't know, 180 little ones. It was only going to be a, a, a few weeks, but there's so many different takes on it from a medical societal point of view. It's just fascinating. And we don't know the end of the story yet, right? Yes. And at first, I, you know, I thought it'd be like a flu. Oh, in a few weeks, I'll stop it. And I only started because I, I have three boys, and one of my boys went to a conference in New Orleans a year ago, came back. He lives in New York City, came back and got a phone call the next day. Somebody has been diagnosed positive with COVID 19. Stay in your apartment. And I said, Boy, that's strange. And then for two weeks or so, quarantine, and things just got, New York City was the epicenter at the time, got worse and worse. And that was just like overwhelmed all the news, right? If it was a side issue, maybe not as, I wouldn't have stayed on as as much as I have, but yeah. Yes. No, no, no. I I understand. Yeah. There's always these new things, right? That come along that just keep you pushing in a different direction. Yeah. And, and I said, well, why do I have that? Why do I find it? Is this new? I mean, the, it turned out the energy research was, the energy was new, but the research was not new because I go back to my high school days where I did research on sort of the countercultural writers at the time mm-hmm. in the 60s. And then when I went to college, there, at Middlebury, there was a uh, structure of four, one, four. You take four classes in one month. You take one class of your own if you want. And then four. And for that one, I got interested in this new educational concept. There's a guy talking about Summerhill. Have you heard of Summerhill? No, no. Oh, well, is teaching the way people teach, professor teaching to students the only way we should be educated or should there be more of a group effort where students learn with the professors? Very creative. It was started in England and in Boston, they were trying, a few schools were experimenting with that idea. And I went down and took pictures of it and learned about it and went back to Middlebury. And if it's part of my research project, I made a presentation. So I see that as sort of a, from that on a continuation of learning new things. And it's, it's it's great. It keeps the brain the brain functioning as well. Yeah. Okay. I have to look into that because the class I have to teach now is is <laughs> it's called an energy lab, and basically uh-huh. the students. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I hate giving grades. I actually don't believe in grades. Yeah. But I just no want. Yeah, because it doesn't I, just do it. I don't. I mean, not just do it, right? You got to provide structure structure as an instructor, uh, yeah. and but you facilitate the discussion and you explore what they're interested in. You learn together. This is right. What what I find just fundamental for teaching is I don't have all the answers. Like, <laughs> what yes. do I know? <laughs> so yeah, right, right. Well, we you know traditionally you have this <clears throat> control. excuse me, control issue, you're in control, you have the power, it's a power dynamics, and you teach them, they don't teach you. And this is where you sort of flip things you can learn as they start working on different issues. 
Yes, yes. Our, and our students are from all over the world. So I'm, yeah. I'm yeah. constantly learning all, all the time. Okay, Ed, thank you so much uh, for setting aside the time and, and talking to us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. Please follow the My Energy 2050 podcast in iTunes or Stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode. If you like this episode and feel others can benefit from the information, please share it on social media. You can contact me to provide feedback or suggestions on Twitter at MyEnergy2050 or on LinkedIn.